All right, good evening, everyone. Good evening, and welcome back to our week-by-week journey through the New City Catechism in 2024. Uh, This is the sixth installment of our series, and we'll be focused this evening on question number 10. Um, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, while I say a couple of words of introduction. Exodus 20. Uh, We are in the middle of um, five weeks or so that we'll spend uh, on the law, Uh, the the nature of the law by way of introduction, and then the Ten Commandments uh, little by little, uh, spending a few weeks on those, and how not only were they first uh, given to Israel and for what purpose, uh, but then how they still are meant to govern the activity of the believer in the New Covenant era, and how finally uh, the Ten Commandments will be the ultimate ruling authority uh, that will govern the eternal state in heaven, right? There'll be no murder, there'll be no jealousy, there'll be no strife, right? There'll be no theft or lies in heaven, because the Ten Commandments will be the, if you will, the law of the land. And so these are good and moral and eternal. And so we are tonight in the fourth and fifth command. So once you find your place there in Exodus 20, um, I want to ask you to do one more thing, and that's turn over to Hebrews chapter 3, and just hold your fingers so we can flip from one to the other and read a few bits from each by way of introduction. So Exodus 20, Hebrews 3, and then when you have your place there, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of the word. Okay, picking it up in the fourth command found in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So the five-day work week is an American invention, right? Six days, really. But the seventh day, verse 10, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For or because, which is to say this is rooted in... In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And on into the fifth command tonight, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And now over to Hebrews 3 for a few verses beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, look, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, 
leading you to fall away from the living God. And then down into chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And we'll pause there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your kindness to us, uh, for your uh, very specific, very clear, articulated scriptures. As we look to them, would you give us uh, ears to hear, minds to understand, willing hearts ready to obey, and would you um, mold us and shape us to live life as we are commanded, the way that Paul talks about it in his work in Ephesians, where there is you know, the first half of the book all about doctrine and what things are and what things mean. And then the second half of the book is all about how to put it into practice. May tonight be the same, that we would put that which we learn into practice. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In Augustine's famous work, Confessions, um, he makes this statement, and there's variations of it in various different translations, but it essentially says this, without God, what am I but a guide to my own destruction? Without God, what am I but a guide to my own destruction. It's a concept we'll come back to again and again this evening. Question 10 of the New City Catechism asks, what does God require in the fourth and the fifth commandments? And the answer comes, fourth, that on the Sabbath day we spend time in public and private worship of God, rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. And then fifth, that we love and honor our father and our mother, submitting to their godly discipline and direction. Well, first, by way of introduction, we're going to focus on uh, the first command, the keeping of the Sabbath. Uh, This can be observed on two extremes. And the words I put over the two extremes are oppression and delusion. Okay? Now, these are the two unhealthy extremes which we might observe the Sabbath. Um, on the one side, the Sabbath can be, opp- can be uh, oppressive. Okay, this is the observance of a Sabbath day that is rigid joylessness, as is described by Almanzo Wilder in the book Farmer Boy in the Little House on the Prairie series. There, a young Uh, Almanzo describes life being raised in the late 1800s America um, in a household uh, that is probably part of the um, uh, Puritan Methodist denomination and influence where Sunday uh, was a day to first go to church and then sit still the rest of the day. No play, no exercise. You sit still, you read, you think. Now, for a farmer who works and breaks his back all week long, sitting still is a good Sabbath, right? But it's torture for a nine-year-old boy. And he got in trouble one time for um, riding his sled 
in the snow on the Sabbath, right? Okay, that can be oppressive, okay? Um, and then, but then the alternative is delusion, where the other extreme is something of a part-time Christianity, if you will, quote-unquote, where Sunday is the day you're a Christian. You go to church, right? That is, if you're not at the game or on vacation or any other number of reasons why we so readily forfeit the assembly. The rest of the week, spiritual things barely get a second thought, but we pretend to be Christian on the Sabbath. We are merely, if you will, um, entertaining delusion. You get the idea? I heard a black comedian, uh, a black Christian comedian, he tells the story of calling a woman from his church. And he, he says it like this. I didn't know it at the time, but she was a part-time Christian, and I called her on her day off. <laughs> she answered the phone with attitude. Who the blank is this, and how'd you get this blankety-blank number, right? This is his words. I'm just quoting his story, right? So I said, well, this is Brother Goodwin from the church. And she said, oh, praise the Lord, brother. <laughs> okay, uh, part-time Christian, all right? Called her on her day off. <laughs> These are the extremes, okay? Sunday is the most ruthlessly somber and joyless day of the week because it's the holy day and you sit still, you know? Or Sunday is the day you pretend to take your faith seriously. Neither extreme is faithful to the whole counsel of God. What God prescribes for his people is a day of rest for their good and for his glory. Neither for oppression nor to entertain delusion. And so if you're taking notes, let's take this in first. Number one, the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day. And I've organized our slides this evening to follow more of my sub-points for your benefit. So you'll find a series of statements or questions. After number one, the Sabbath day, we come to sub-point A. uh, Question, what is it? Uh, What is it? Um, And the answer is really simple. It's from the Hebrew word sabbat or shabbat, which means stoppage. Okay? Um, the, the last day of the week is, is a stoppage day. And God made it holy, but it means to stop. So one day in seven, the prescription came to the Hebrew people, rest from your normal work as a gift to the body and mind and give exclusive devotion to the worship of God through various forms and means. This was the, pri- the basic prescription for the Sabbath. Rest from your normal work as a gift to the body and mind. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the Sabbath is made for man, not man made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift. Okay, But it's also, it comes the same way that the marriage covenant is both a gift and a command. Um, it comes with, with a, uh, a, a, a forbiddance, if you will. Right, what is required and what is forbidden. And so the, obvi- the, uh, the instruction comes to give exclusive devotion to the worship of God through various forms and means. Now, in recent years, um, among 
churchgoers, an argument has been made that the Sabbath day can be any day of the week, that you can take a personal Sabbath any day of the week so long as you rest and you worship God. Um, While it's not entirely untrue based on Christian liberty, um, it is a little bit loose um, in terms of when you take the whole counsel of Scripture and church history um, and you weigh them out carefully. A couple of questions. Is every day holy in the New Covenant? Yes, Romans 14, 5. Okay, every day is a holy day. Every day is a, a, a holy Sabbath, if you will, unto the Lord. Uh, is Jesus Lord of the Sabbath, which we'll examine this coming Sunday, and therefore he redefines what the Sabbath day means under the new covenant? Yes, also true. Are we explicitly instructed by Paul not to argue over feast days and Sabbath days and one person honors one day and another person honors all days? Are we explicitly told not to pass judgment and not to quarrel over these things? Yes, Romans 14 again, 5 and 6. That said, there is strong biblical and historical support for a Sabbath day Sunday rest the first day of the week ever since Jesus' resurrection, therefore the Sunday Sabbath being a memorial to that event. We find a reference to this notion in Revelation chapter 1, where John says he was in the Spirit on the first day, or on the Lord's day, synonymous terms. The first day of the week being not uh, Monday, as we think of it, but Sunday. Um, Not only that, but this was um, a day which was to include the assembly of the saints together for the collection of the offerings on the first day. That is 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. For the worship of God and singing in prayer, Colossians 3, 16, and for the instruction in the scriptures, we find Paul on the first day of the week, having assembled the people, giving instruction in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and then the command not to forsake such an assembly in Hebrews 10, 25. Now, you put those scriptures together, and you find a pretty strong case for the people of God gathering to collect offerings, gathering for prayer, gathering for instruction under the authority of the apostles, so this is in the apostolic era, not a hundred or two hundred years later, but immediately thereafter, on the Sunday Sabbath, the first day of the week, a memorial to the day of Jesus' resurrection. So that's, it's pretty strong. You have to actually work really hard to ignore those things and highlight the fact that you have the option to do otherwise. Then you go further in, um, let's just say, let's go into the Reformation era and something like the Baptist Confession of Faith. We're a Baptist church, so this statement should matter to us um, somewhat. Um, The Baptist Confession of Faith on the Sabbath day says this, As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, So by his word and a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven 
for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. So again, this is an argument rooted in creation, which from the beginning of the world until the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, Saturday, right? And from the resurrection of Christ was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. That's those scriptures that I quoted to you earlier from uh, Revelation 1 specifically. And it is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. So again, what are we talking about? We're talking about strong historical and biblical evidence that there is something especially unique about the Sunday Sabbath rest. Is it an absolute law? No. Is it, do you find strong support for this concept? Yes, yes, yes. So when you combine the biblical evidence and the historical precedent, it's not unfair and it's not legalistic to say something like this statement. The most faithful observation of the Sabbath day command under the new covenant of grace is to treat Sunday as the Lord's day, a day of rest from regular labor set aside for holy refreshment, holy worship, holy study, and holy service. Again, not meant to be a legalistic statement, just a reasonable conclusion given the body of evidence. This ought not be treated as oppressive or legalistic, but as a gift from God to his children. The way that Billy Graham explained, you know, marriage and um, uh, what is appropriate physical intimacy between male and female, right? He explained this like on like the Tonight Show or something with Johnny Carson, right? It was pretty, this guy had some pretty cool opportunities, but he just basically said, you know, well, well, you have a baseball game, right? Without rules, there's no game. There's just chaos. So for the good of the game, you have rules. And, and this is how Billy kind of uh, made reference to uh, the laws of God, which are good for his creation. Not meant to be oppressive. They are a gift. Without them, you have chaos. Or as Augustine said, Without God, what am I but a guide to my own destruction? Right? So you follow the argument so far? Okay. Um, not only is this a reasonable gift with reasonable um, evidence, um, but when we read the text of Scripture, to have the Sunday Sabbath assembly and rest is the, the most reasonable means of imitating the apostles' example um, and as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so I'm not going to belabor that anymore. Um, rather, from this point forward, I want to expound on the practical application of the Sunday Sabbath under the new covenant. All right? So then beyond what is it, we'll come to question number two, how do we keep it holy? Assuming we are going to uh, consider every day holy, um, but we are going to set aside one day especially uh, to set our minds and hearts on the Lord. How do we keep it holy? Well, the first answer to that question is by remembrance. By remembrance. This is important, kind of like the way that Paul talks about the unity of the Spirit in the church. 
He says you're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That means you didn't generate the unity. The Spirit who dwells in us as brothers and sisters in the Lord, He created the unity. You're to be eager to maintain it, right? To acknowledge it, to protect it. The same idea comes here. Um, you don't make the day holy. The day is holy. You see? Right? You go back to the Exodus account um, in, in Exodus chapter 20, and, and you find these words. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Right? Not make it. You don't make it holy by remembering it. You keep it holy by remembering that it is holy. Make sense? Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a stoppage. A Sabbath to the Lord our God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. So even your cow has to take a nap or the sojourner who is in the gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the first way we keep it holy according to the command is to simply remember that it is. Okay? Uh, holy means not the same as. It's interesting, you know, that the, this is the one descriptor of God that is repeated, you know, three times over in succession for emphasis in the scriptures. Holy, holy, holy. Different, different, different. Not the same as you. Not the same as you. Not the same as you. Right? That's the inference. The, the, the verb form is kadesh, which is to keep it holy, which means to set it apart from common use. So we keep it holy by first remembering that it was God who stamped it as holy. Also, secondly, by holy rest. Not rest from merely that which is sinful. I'm going to rest from my sin today because it's the Lord's day. Tomorrow... It's going crazy, you know? No, not, and this, it's funny because I've got this thick book. It's, um, it's the Westminster Catechism Explained from Scripture, okay? So it's, it's a, a blown-out explanation. And the author, Thomas Vincent, uh, he, he makes this point. We don't, we don't rest from sin on the Sabbath day. We're pursuing holiness every day. So it's not that, so don't. Don't let ourselves fall into that notion. Um, Jerry Bridges in The Pursuit of Holiness, a book I read when I was, I don't know, 16 or 17, changed my world. Um, he said, uh, we are called to pursue holiness not because it earns us salvation, but out of gratitude for the salvation we've received. Uh, this requires surrendering our own desires and submitting to God's will in every area of our lives. And so in this regard, every day is holy unto the Lord. It's a holy pursuit. But on the Sabbath day, we rest from worldly duty. Those things which are rightly required of us. Right duty. Good duty. But they are common. They are every day. This day is not common. It is not the same as. Because God stamped it so. This is the idea. Such is the explanation. Six days you shall work. Most of my married life, I've had a six-day work week. And don't, before you cry me a river, like most of my work is like sitting behind a computer and drinking coffee, so don't feel too bad for me. Um, but most of my marriage, our, our routine has been, I, I work, um, 
you know, Saturday to Thursday, and I take Friday off for family time. That was the pattern my old pastor um, had for us in the office, and it's one that I've maintained since, and we have, you know, Friday family days. But Saturday, when you're a pastor, is a work day. Um, Sunday is certainly a work day, and the rest of the days of the week, you people with all your garbage, you know, I got to deal with you and prepare these lessons. No, but like that's a, you know, the five-day work week, that's, that's an American invention. Six days you shall labor. Chuck Missler actually, he goes, he goes off on this on one of these things. He's like, we're so lazy. <laughs> Six days you shall work. Bunch of lazy Americans. He's pretty, it's pretty good. Uh, but the, uh, that, that book that I referenced earlier, Thomas Vincent, he said this includes rest from laborious preparation even for the week ahead, such as in the ancient, kind of like the older world, killing beasts on the Sabbath to prepare for the Monday market. And, and in that previous iteration of time where such a thing was, was more normal, uh, he would say, no, that's, that's four common days. Don't even... Don't even prepare for common work on the holy day, which is, a, you know, it's an interesting, very specific regulation. So by holy rest, thirdly, by holy exercise, so we remember by remembering, by holy rest, by holy exercise, and this is something that you find common throughout the, uh, especially the ancient writings of the church, um, that there is the idea of, of holy exercise and then holy works of necessity and mercy, and so Holy exercise is the public and the private exercise of worship. Specifically, quote, the hearing of the word, prayer, the sacraments, the singing of psalms, in, um, all in the public assemblies of God's people. This has been the pattern and the understood mode of Sabbath worship for the church for centuries and centuries. But then, to do all of this with sincerity, again, quote, having a single respect to the honor and the glory of God, whose day the Sabbath day is. Chuck Missler calls it uh, God's appointment, right? You can break your appointments, but how dare I break God's appointment, right? You get the, the difference? Like, God writes this on his calendar, and you're like, I might, uh, I might miss that one, you know? God's calendar. It's good. It's good. The same way that a, uh, your muscles hurt when they're exercised, this kind of a, um, a compulsion to keeping the Sabbath day is good. So by holy exercise, and then, and then fourthly, by works of necessity and mercy, right? Because you would say, well, how does the pastor do his job? How do we serve in the kids' ministry? How do we come early and, you know, set up for church or set up chairs or teach a Sunday school lesson? That all feels a little bit like work. Um, well, there's, there's works of necessity, there's works of worship, and there's works of mercy. And so there's works of necessity like eating and drinking, defending ourselves from enemies, quenching fires of houses, visiting the sick, relieving the poor, feeding the cattle, Right? They'll die otherwise. So there's a necessity. You got to get up and get a glass of water. Uh, we'll talk about this Sunday, but the the Pharisees had 39 different laws to put on the people to ensure that they keep the Sabbath day. Um, practicing like Orthodox Jews um, today, uh, one of their habits is to turn off their cell phones. 
So at sundown on, well, well, for them, it's they still maintain the old Sabbath. So Friday night at sundown, the cell phones get turned off, and they don't get turned back on until uh, Saturday at sundown. Uh, so I- interesting, you know, practice there that would probably do us all a lot of good. Uh, Denzel Washington says, uh, yeah, Denzel, yeah, Denzel Washington. I was thinking Booker T. Washington for a second there. No, Denzel, the movie star. He says, uh, he says, young people are so addicted to their phones. And he said, you don't think you're addicted? How about turn it off for a week? And and apparently there were a lot of people in the studio, you know. And he said, oh, it got real quiet in here, right? Turn it off for a week and see if you're not addicted. Tell me you're not addicted, right? So something like turning your cell phone off on a Sunday might be a good thing. It certainly can't go off in church in the middle of my sermon if it's off, right? So by holy exercise and then by works of necessity and works of mercy, caring for the poor. I think um, one, of our, one of our church members, I think it was this past Sunday, they brought a big pot of soup to my house. My girls were sick and Jake had gotten sick. And I think they did some work of mercy on the Sabbath day to bring us a big pot of soup and bread. You know? It's good. This is good work. This is... This is a, a, a right observation of the Sabbath, caring for the sick and relieving the poor, all in a spiritual manner as, as may be done. That's how the phrasing goes, in as spiritual a manner as may be done. Well, moving on, what does it mean? Okay, how to keep it holy, but then what does it mean? To remember the Sabbath and keep it holy finally is is like an arrow pointing toward that ultimate and final rest of eternity. And that's why we read from Hebrews by way of introduction. Um, The Lord associates the inheritance of the promised land for Israel as entering his rest, um, something that the disobedient did not do, right? You think of all the rebels, the whole generation that died in the wilderness, uh, Korah's rebellion, right? Let's go back to Egypt, all right? The earth opens up and swallows them whole, right? There's a, there was a, a disobedient group of Hebrews that were rescued, but they didn't enter the rest of the promised land. And so the writer of Hebrews says that, that this promise uh, still stands for us in Christ, Because as God associates his rest with the promised land for Israel, he associates eternity for his church as his rest. And then again, if we kept reading in Hebrews later on in verse uh, 11 of chapter 4, and we are compelled to strive toward that end that we might enter God's rest. Again, like three or four times in short order. And so uh, we understand that the land of Israel, the promised land, finds its fullest expression in the heavenly land of rest in the eternal state. So, every Lord's Day, Sunday, Sabbath day, that we observe this routine as both a gift and a command, we eight things, and just get my notes, don't try to write them down real fast, just worship with me for a moment. Eight things. Every Sunday that we do this, we, one, are personally rejuvenated. We encourage one another. We are reminded of God's goodness. We, number four, something that Tim Keller said, we have our minds reset from the week before. 
right? The priority of our mind is reset. The, the number one thing gets put back in the number one place somehow, majestically, if you will. It's a great way to think of it. Our minds are reset from the week before and for the week that is ahead. We stand on the shoulders of the apostles, the church that has come before us, and the reformers. We are equipped, number six, by singing and preaching. We, seven, we look back and remember Christ's resurrection, and we, number eight, anticipate Christ's return and our eternal union to him. All of those things happen by prescription on the Lord's Day. So when we observe the Lord's Day on Sunday and miss it very infrequently, um, we are regularly engaging all eight of those things and probably more. So we come back again to that quote from Augustine, without God, what am I but a guide to my own destruction? Without God's command to rest, we'd probably work ourselves to the bone. I, I, there's no time, and so I didn't get into this tonight, but there are studies that are completely secular studies that show the, the wisdom that our, bodies, that our bodies biologically respond to a respite every seven days, right? And they go, look at this, I mean, just look at this amazing study, just came out of Harvard, all these heathens discovered this thing, and all the Christians are like, yeah, We've been telling you this, like God said, you know? And I mean, we can kind of joke about that, but, but really what we should do is we marvel. We have the command, but then later on, the more humanity develops and the more sophisticated the science becomes, then we can actually observe biological effects that the wisdom of God's commands have on our person. Wow! You know? Israel couldn't have known that when God wrote the commandments on a tablet of stone. But his wisdom in it is only reinforced the more advanced civilization, civilization becomes. Yeah, there's more too. I mean, there's, they've studied dirt and how if you let the dirt settle and the, then the nitrates and the nutrients and whatever. And yeah, there's all kinds of stuff that, that the, the wisdom of God's restrictions are proven for the ultimate good of humanity again and again. And it's the same with the Sabbath rest. Well, in my notes, uh, there's a bunch of cross-references for the things that you might have missed, and there's also a link to a great little John Piper article, which I think is a, a very quick, easy synopsis read uh, or listen. Uh, so again, if you'd like to get my notes, just let me know, and um, I'll send those out. Let's come to number two then, the second command, because we've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, honor your father and your mother. Uh, for what it's worth, this is where the, the tablets, historically it's believed that the tablets of stone, they, they flipped. Okay, so Moses came down the mountain with two tablets, um, and on the first one were the vertical commands, the ones that were related to God and his exclusive worship and the keeping of his Sabbath day of rest, and then the second tablet, um, the, the focus shifts from man to God and God to man to man to man. So all of the second half, if you will, are how we interact with one another. And beginning first with this, honor your father and your mother. Um, given that there's only 10 commands, I find it incredibly instructive. I find it incredibly instructive that one of the 10 regards this relationship. 
right out of all the things to say, I got 10 things I'm going to say to you, right? And out of all of them, the relationship between parents and children gets one of those slots. That alone should make us think, hmm, this must really, really, really matter to God, right? Douglas Stewart, uh, he says, the prior commandments were all concerned in one way or another with the necessity of honoring God as a basic means of keeping his covenant. Now comes a command that follows logically, listen, because it is concerned with honoring parents who have the awesome role in the family of representing God to their children. That's a great picture and a great challenge for dads, by the way. Just This isn't the lesson, but um, I say this in every parenting class that Leslie and I have taught for, I guess, the last 10 years or more. Um, dads, your, your precognitive children will develop their definition of God as they see him in their subconscious mind by your demeanor. When you ask a young child what they think God is like, it will be directly reflective upon um, the relationship that they have with their dad. Um, and that has dire consequences, both for good and for ill. You know? Again, we don't have time to go through the statistics of what fatherlessness has done to generations, um, but needless to say, since about 1960, uh, when more and more single-parent homes became uh, the norm, um, more and more children being raised without their fathers or being raised by abusive fathers, um, suddenly, um, suddenly these things that we had everywhere for hundreds of years, guns, and these other things that we had, schools, suddenly they became a problem when they were mixed together out of, out of thin air. We had the guns, we had the schools, but we weren't having school shootings until, guess what, fatherlessness became rampant and increased in our society. Well, again, there's no time. All I would say is uh, there is a, a, a holy privilege um, and a holy fear that should come uh, along with that. And it should also be considered a holy compassion for those who are raised without a, a father or without a good father figure. And how they psychologically, intimately, subconsciously understand the person of God will always be warped because of the warped relationship with their earthly father. The grace of God is strong enough to redeem and to heal that. But boy, boy does it have painful ramifications for a society. So we talk about honoring your mother and father. What is it? Um... If we're doing, again, subpoints, what is it? Um, expressed positively, this command highlights the special status of parents. They should have a special role. And again, a lot of this is idealistic. Okay, this is assuming uh, that we're not talking about abuse. Okay, assuming that not being part of the picture. Um, to honor parents is, um, is good. And it means to, more, to do more than obey them. It is to prize them highly. That's interesting, isn't it? To prize them highly. Within the tribal structure of ancient Israel, parents exercise an important role in ensuring stability in the society. 
And in the new covenant era of grace, the command carries the same requirement of the people of God, and it carries the same practical blessing on society as a whole. Um, just because we are in the new covenant, that doesn't mean that, the, the, that this command is somehow um, null. 1 Timothy 5, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Uh, what was Paul doing? Paul was instructing Timothy on how to lead the elders of the church. Care for the widow, but if that widow has children, they have a duty before the church community has a duty. Very interesting, right? But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, this is continuing in 1 Timothy 5, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty strong language. Um, then you go on from there to Ephesians 6, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first command, with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And then it comes with that, from Paul, comes with that second word to the fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And I think if someone was to say, hey, Paul, why? Why shouldn't fathers provoke their children to anger? Why should they raise them a particular way? He would say, well, because they're going to define God by your demeanor. So you are painting a picture for them in their minds. What was Moses excluded from the promised land for doing? Misrepresenting God. God said, okay, Moses, this time speak to the rock. Moses was like, all right, talk to the rock, talk to the rock, talk to the rock. You bunch of, you know, right? And he just blasts the people of Israel. You bunch of heathens, shall we bring water from this rock for you rebels? And then he hits the rock. And this man who had lived, and I think if the math, if the math checks out, it's like he was like 120 years old when he died. This man who had lived for so long, and had learned so many lessons. He was permitted to see the land of promise, but not enter into it. And you think, man, this guy who was so faithful and so consistent, and he bore so much patience with the people of God. He led them. Because of them, he, he had to experience their judgment. Forty years in the wilderness, wandering, eating this same manna all the time. And then just because of this one moment where he gets a little carried away, he's an angry old man. You would be too, you know? And for this, he's excluded from entering into the promised land? Come on, that's unreasonable, isn't it, God? Well, maybe, except that we're considering what, what was the requirement. The requirement was to accurately represent God to his children. And so, again... It should come with a sense of holy fear to accept the duty to be a father. And we have to be ready to apologize to our children when we get that very wrong. Um, well, continuing, we only have a few more minutes. So, um, what is it? We go from there to um, uh, the two sort of sides of the coin. To honor your parents has an interior and an exterior. 
Uh, Malachi 1, a son honors his father and a servant his master. This is God speaking. If then I am the father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? says the Lord of hosts. Now this is an interior consideration uh, scripture because what was happening addressed by the prophet Malachi? They were, this is the whole thing we talked about Sunday, they were offering the sacrifices but not with any mourning, right? They were doing the least that they could to maintain the spirit or to maintain the letter of the law but they missed the spirit of the law. And so what were they missing? They were missing the inward honor, Going through the motions is not the same thing as honoring me. Where's my honor? Right? And they're like, but we gave you the lamb. He's like, you gave me a lame lamb. You gave me a blind goat. Right? You're going through the motions, but there's no inward honor. So the idea is first inward honor, inward reverence, inward fear of offending, inward estimation, regardless of what has been earned. My dad doesn't deserve my honor. Yes, he does, because he's your dad, right? Then there's the exterior. Interior and then exterior. First Kings 2, so Bathsheba went to King Solomon, and the king rose to meet her, and he bowed to her. He was the king at this point. Then he sat on his throne, and he had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right honor right as jesus rightly said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks so too the outward activity of the offspring toward their parent betrays the inward disposition either one of honor or one of disgrace interior exterior then lastly how to apply it how to apply it well, it's the same today as yesterday. We treat this command in the new covenant uh, the same as the people of God did in the old. This is the moral law of God, which is eternal. Jesus challenged the, teach, the Pharisees, teaching that this command could be negotiated out of practice by false piety. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus. This is um, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, is it? That's what I wrote in my notes. I don't think that's right. It might be. That can't be right. Maybe it's right. I don't know. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God? Right? Do you see the lesser and the greater? Why do they break the tradition of the elders? Jesus says, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Well, what command? Well, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, you have a tradition that says, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. That's the tradition that they were teaching. He doesn't need to honor his father. What you would have gotten from me is devoted to the Lord. Sorry, dad, can't take you to the doctor. I'm serving the Lord today. That's the idea. Son, I'm, you know, uh, grass is growing up and I can't get to the thing and can you come help me out, you know. Sorry, Dad, I'm on the mission field. I'm evangelizing today. I've given what you would get from me. I've given it back to the Lord. 
right? False piety. Jesus says, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. All right. So it's the same today as yesterday. And you do so even when they're wrong. I won't tell a story about that because there's no time. Uh, But there is a principle that grows with you. So you do so even when they're wrong. You can still honor them. Uh, You can, there's there's a civil disobedience that still comes with honor. So you can honor them even if you disobey them because you are commanded to, to obey them in the Lord, Ephesians 6, 1, which implies if they require something of you that is beyond the scriptures, uh, you have a right duty to say no. Um, but it's a principle that grows with you, and this is how I wanted to conclude. The uniqueness of this command is that the principle stays the same even as its application changes the most out of all the commands over the course of a lifetime. How you honor your parents changes when you transition from childhood to early adulthood and from early adulthood to maturity, maybe with your own children, and then from maturity to what I've seen, mutual appreciation, and then from mutual appreciation to, in many cases, then you become their primary caregiver and provider. They changed your diapers, and eventually you might wind up changing theirs. That's the idea. They drove you around, and now you drive them. They fed you by hand, and eventually you might feed them. They helped you walk, and now you help them. They made your medical decisions, and now you make theirs. This is often a great and challenging burden, but for the believer, it is a delight we undertake as unto the Lord with reverence and care. What an astonishing journey, right? All phases guided by one all-wise and all-encompassing principle command. Honor them. Well, we're out of time, so we'll pause there and just remember that statement once again from Augustine, where, um, without God, what am I but a guide to my own destruction? These commands are meant both for our good uh, and for God's glory. Without them, we are but guides to our own destruction. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us and the time that we've had to spend considering these things from your word. May you hear our prayers and our petitions as we lift them before you for our family members and loved ones and ministry partners and for the sake of your gospel around the world. In Christ's name, amen. Okay.